First, I want to say that I am honored. We're doing the last part of uh, the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I am honored that they would think I, I am qualified to speak on deliverance. I'm also offended that they think I know enough about temptation to speak on that. <laughs> so my part is the last part. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that is Dick Storbo. That was a friend of mine up in Canada a long time ago, and he was old then, so I'm thinking he's he's dead now. But back then, when I knew him, you know, his wife had passed away. No, to be more accurate, she's passed away now, but she had left him. And he decided, since he's old, that he's going to retire. And back then, they were creating a... It's the only place in America at that time that a city was built and it was created to be a retirement community and that was Sun City Arizona it was built as a retirement community and those are the kind of activities they have there it's a great place to perhaps take a walk or hang out and catch a game we also have bird watching, sightseeing, attend a Sunday morning service, or for the more athletic, we have golf. So Dick decided to move down there, and he jumps in his car and he heads off with his bag of Doritos and his Postillos and his diet soda, and he's driving. So he gets down to Arizona, and it's like... 95 degrees, and it's hot down there. And he's driving along, and he's wiping sweat from his forehead, and he's looking at the speedometer, and he's trying to calculate kilometers, miles per hour, because in Canada they've got a freaky math up there. And he's going, next thing you know, he's doing like 85 miles an hour. And a motorcycle cop pulled him over. Oh, in fact, there's the picture. That's Dick Storbo right there, and there's a the motorcycle cop. So the motorcycle cop was one of these kind with a white helmet and the mirrored sunglasses. You in a heap of trouble, boy. kind of. And he starts writing him up a ticket. And he's scratching on this ticket. And these flies start flying around, Dick, uh, uh, around the cop's head. They're just buzzing all over. And he's writing and he's wiping sweat and he's writing. And Dick says, circle flies. And the cop says, uh, what's that you say, Mr. Storbo? And he says, them there circle flies. Those are the kind of flies that like to circle around a horse's ass. And that cop stopped riding and he yanked those mirrored sunglasses off and he looked and he said, Sir, are you trying to insinuate I'm a horse's ass? And he goes, Oh, no, sir, I'd never do that. But you can't fool them circle flies. <laughs> but that's okay. Dick went to jail that night. <laughs> but that's okay. He came out of there smiling. Because he, uh, in jail, he met his new soulmate. There she is. Temptation. What does all of this have to do with temptation? You know, when you tell a story in a sermon, you got to try to find some way to, to feel, uh, you know, make it connect, or else the pastor goes, What the heck was that all about? 
Don't ever insult the cop, no matter how tempting it is. Okay, so we got that. So when I was a kid, we had this school project we had to do, and I, I want to show of hands how many of you had to do this. We were all required to make what they called a terrarium. Anybody know what that is? I, this amazes me because I haven't heard of those since I was a kid. And I had to look it up. Uh, what is that thing where there's all these plants in a bottle? And Googling that, and finally something came up and said terrarium. Oh, yeah, that was it. So we had to make a terrarium. And what you do is you, you throw a little dirt in there and a little bit of water, and you put some seeds in there, and, you, and all I remember is you had to throw a cricket in there. And you put the lid on, and, and the cricket makes uh, carbon dioxide, and the plants make oxygen, and they all live off of each other. And you've got it. It's sealed. It's self-contained. It all lives right in this bottle, and you never have to touch it again, and it just grows. And the creator, the one that makes this, never has to do another thing to it except perhaps show it off to the other creators that made other terrariums. That's the only thing you have to do. And unfortunately, a lot of people look at it like that's the God that we have now. That he created it, but he has nothing else to do with it. And he's kind of a impotent, uncaring, distant, faraway God that just created it and walked away and left us on our own. Unfortunately, the men and women... Where's Brand? Thank you. I caught it for saying men all morning. Let it be known that if I say men while I'm sitting here, unless it has to do with breeding, it means men and women. And I don't think I'm going to say anything about men breeding. So leave me alone, okay? So unfortunately, these people never call on God because they think he no longer exists or he doesn't care or he doesn't hear them. So we had another thing that I got to do when I was a kid. This was cool. Wasn't school, didn't make me do it. Mom bought it for me. Either that or one of my stepfathers stole it for me. I'm not sure which. An ant farm. Anybody ever made an ant farm? I'm surprised that PETA lets you do that anymore. You know, <laughs> clandestinely making ant farms. So, if you've never made one, you open up this thing and you pour the dirt in and maybe a cricket, I don't know, but you put some ants in there. Some of them came with ants, some of them you had to go out back and gather some ants. So I had this little packet of ants, and I poured it in there, and I added some water, and I watched it, and they started digging. And they start, you know, and they kept digging, and they made all these tunnels. And every day I would look at it, and look, look how much more progress they made. Look, they made some more, and they made some more. But eventually, they got it all made, and they quit doing anything. They were just like a bunch of couch potato ants. They'd just sit around, hey, we got the work done. Let's have a beer now. And so I would look every day and no change and every day. And, no, and finally, eventually, I got bored. So I picked it up and I slammed it on the table and it all caved in. And all the ants started scurrying around to survive. And next thing you know, they're building tunnels. And I'm going, cool. They started over. And so it got to where I started slamming it on the table every couple of weeks, you know, just to see them start over again. 
So, um, unfortunately, there's people that see God as that way. You know, they see God as an angry God, not caring. Unfortunately, they end up afraid and hiding from God. They see God that way because of things like the flood. You know, God created everything, and then eventually He just slammed it all on the table and and let us start rebuilding. But Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not a high priest who is... For we have a high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities and was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Lead us not into temptation. You know, lead us not into temptation. I have a problem with that because when I look at that part of the Bible, I'm going, what? Lead us not into temptation. This is a God that wants to save us. Why would he lead us into temptation? That would to, to say, God, don't lead me into temptation. To me, is kind of like saying, Mom, don't dismember me. It's like, why would she do that? I mean, she loves us. God loves us. Please put the uh, cheesy Christian slide of God loving us up there now. There we go. Okay, go with a better slide. Get the better one up. All right. Matthew 4, verse 1 through 3 says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted. You know, I never imagined God wanting us to be tempted. But when, you know, I think when they said, Jesus, tell us how to pray, he said, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom. And he's going through all this, and he goes, dude, I was let up and tempted, and that sucked. Dude, pray that God doesn't lead you to temptation because you can't make it. I think that's the reason it's in the, in the prayer, is because Jesus went through that kind of temptation. He don't ever want us to face that kind of temptation. I think that's the only reason he stuck it in there is, like, dude, you're not going to make this. I had a hard time. You're not going to make it. Pray that don't happen to you. You know, and then... James 1, 12 through 14 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Don't blame your temptations on God. You know, the Bible's pretty clear. The devil tempts you. In fact, he's called the tempter. And then he says that we are led away and tempted of our own accord. But Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 says, Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. Not only does he not lead us into temptation, but he also wants to help us fight temptation. You know, I, I could go on all day about temptation, but it's a two-part thing, and i gotta, I got to talk about deliverance. You know, I've been tempted. You've been tempted. We've all been tempted. Show, show me a hand of everybody that's never been tempted. Not even scarlet? Wow. So the Bible says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Psalms 59.2 says, deliver me from the evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. See, deliver us from evil is not just evil that we do. 
evil that the devil does to us, but evil that the devil does to us through others. Psalm 71.4 says, Deliver me, O God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. Now, I want to say something here. Abstinence is not the same as deliverance. You know, when it comes to sin in your life, and you're specifically I'm talking about addictions here. Uh, I, I went through that, addictions. I, I was an alcoholic, um, both kinds, the kind that, that drank every day and the kind that drank until he was drunk. I was a coke addict. And trust me, when you're, when you're doing coke, you can do a lot of alcohol. Uh, the word abstinence means the act or practice of abstaining, refraining from something. Uh, it also means any self-restraint, self-denial, or forbearance. It also means displaying self-control. The key word in all of these is self. It's what man does. Man abstains. God delivers. Man cannot deliver you from anything. What I want to say here is I want to pick my words here. Our part is to abstain. God's part is to deliver. If you're suffering with an addiction and you stop doing that, that's abstention, to abstain. But if you're addicted to that the rest of your life, you're still an addict. As, the, as Alcoholics Anonymous calls it, a dry drunk. I'm an alcoholic, but I haven't had a drink in 40 years. You know, I'll be honest, we always had a problem with that. Because my Bible says you can speak things into existence. And if you keep calling yourself an alcoholic, you're going to be an alcoholic. But I want to tell you something. Before I knew Jesus, uh, I was living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was a bouncer at a bunch of topless joints. And I was dealing drugs. I had four drug dealers that I supplied cocaine to. I was riding with motorcycle gangs. I was an alcoholic. I drank every day. And I did drugs every day. And when the guy came to me and talked to me about Jesus, something happened in my heart. And just with one sitting down, one dinner and speaking, when I walked away from there, I knew that something had changed inside of me. And he said, John, what do you want to do? And I said, I'll be honest with you. I'd like to jump on my motorcycle and, and ride home and snort some Coke and read the Bible. And he just jumped up and said, let me get you a Bible. And I said, aren't you going to tell me how cocaine's a sin? And I have to quit. And he goes, that's not my job. It's my job to introduce you to Jesus, and it's his job to change your life. I went home, and I did three grams of Coke that night and read the New Testament. And by 6 o'clock in the morning, I had a meeting with God. And I want to tell you something. I was delivered from the addiction of alcohol, and I was delivered from the addiction of cocaine. Not only have I never touched cocaine since that day, since right then, I've never had the desire to. 
I found cocaine laying on the ground in a vial and just stepped on it and laughed and walked away. I never had the slightest inkling because I know the difference in abstaining and deliverance. What I want you to know about this is that abstention is what we are to do. Deliverance is what he does. No way am I saying that this gives you an excuse not to abstain. In fact, the Bible tells us to abstain. The Bible says, should we continue to sin so grace should abound? And it says, God forbid. We have to abstain. And God works to do the other part. When you know deliverance comes, it's when the addiction is no longer there. Whether you act on it or not, it's no longer there. When you are no longer tempted by that drug or that alcohol or any other substance. That's what I want you to, to, to hear about addictions and temptations and deliverance and abstinence. Deliverance is different. The definition of deliverance is salvation and rescue. It's, it's pretty simple there. When you are saved from something or rescued from something, it's, it's kind of like this, like you're drowning in the ocean and the waves keep crashing over your head. Abstinence, group therapy, is a bunch of drowning people holding on to each other and wishing them well. But eventually, without the power of God, we're going down because the power of man cannot save you. That's when we need to cry out to God. Deliverance, abstinence is bonding together and helping each other abstain. Deliverance is when they pluck you out of the ocean and set you on dry land. That's deliverance. It doesn't always happen right away, but it happens. And until it happens, God wants us to abstain. Abstinence is the act of men. Deliverance is the act of God. John 8.33 says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Abstinence is temporary. That's why guys fall, and then they get back up and fall and get back up. Deliverance is permanent. And I want to tell you something. I was delivered from alcoholism, not just cocaine addiction. That night I was delivered from the effects of alcoholism. And to be honest with you, me and my wife can go out and have an Italian dinner and a glass of wine and I don't want another one. And I'm not tempted to have another one. And I don't say, let's do it every night. In fact, somebody bought me a six pack of beer. I, I drank two. And uh, a couple of months later, she threw the other four out. I forget to drink. My daughter, for my birthday, she gave me a big bottle of Bailey's. And I'm driving around one day, and it's hot, and I'm sweaty, and I'm going, I'm going to go home and have a Bailey's. That's what I'm going to do. And then the next day in the afternoon, it's going, crap, I forgot to drink last night. That's pretty clear to me. I'm no longer an alcoholic, you know. Isaiah 53.6 says, We like sheep have, been, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, 
Jesus Christ, the iniquity of our all. God paid for all of this so we don't have to wallow in our addictions. We are taught to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, i got something here that I'm just going to read to you. I wrote it, but it's so important that I wrote it exactly like I wanted, and I don't have it memorized. But when I was putting this together, I just started pouring my heart out on the page. And and I'm going to read this. Because inherit to our confession of God, who is not us, is the painful realization that we possess a tendency to fall prey at every step to temptation and to be consumed by evil. However, in that confession lies the hope that we have been given, that the one to whom we pray is not far away, not oblivious, not distant, and not unconcerned with our situation. He is the one who is not nonchalantly watching the travails of human history as if we were some super complex ant farm, nor is he waited to be coerced into action by our, our gifts and our sacrifices or service. He's not there waiting for you to do the right thing for him to move. On the contrary, he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And he laid down his life for me. And he laid down his life for you. The sheep who so easily, so often, and so tragically have gone astray. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And in our prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are confessing our, our conviction that we have heard because he is not silent. Now I want to address another issue. Delivery, deliverance is not just about addiction. Many of us have felt the sting of rejection. When I was a young man, uh, my mom was four, married four times. I never had a father. Uh, they were always gone. Most of the time she was single. I had no father figure. And the one that stayed around the longest was, his name was Walt. He was a thief. And when your dad was teaching you how to swing a bat or catch a ball, he was telling me, teaching me how to pick locks and how to hotwire cars. And then at 16 years old, I guess he figured I was a man. He came out on the back porch and he pulled $10 out and he said, you know, when I was your age, I always said you could drop me off in anywhere in the world and within a day I would have a job and a place to stay with nothing but $10 in my pocket. And he gave me the $10 and said, get out of here. And he went back in and shut the door. Well, I didn't make it very far. And the next day, I showed up at my grandmother's house. And my stepfather came over and and belittled me. Told me I would never be a man if I can't make it more than 24 hours on my own. And they moved to California, and I was left in Dallas with my grandparents. And a couple of months later... Through financial reasons, my family couldn't keep me, and they put me on a bus to California. And when the Greyhound bus pulled up uh, on the side of the road in Placerville, California, 
I started to walk off the door, and Walt stood there with another $10 bill in his hand and a smile on his face, and he handed me $10 and walked away. And I went to Reno, Nevada, and I started working. But my grandmother called me and, and asked me to come back to Dallas because my older brother had gotten out of Vietnam, and he was pretty jacked up. Um, so I went back to Dallas to to try to be somebody my brother could uh, hang on to, um, a place he could tie his balloon. I, I wanted to be the person that would keep him from just floating away because he was out of it. Vietnam really messed him up. So I hung out with him. I tried to be a role model for him, even though he was four years older than me. And I was uh, 17, 16, 17. But Walt and my mom moved back to Dallas, and then Walt called us over and said, Donnie and John, meet me at the truck stop for dinner. So he said he wanted to buy us dinner, and we went. And in that meeting, he said to Donnie, what was it like when you lived in Alaska before going to Vietnam? And Donnie bragged about the caribou hunting and, and uh, salmon fishing and, and what a great place it was. And he said, why don't you ever go back? And he said, I don't have the money to go back. And he said, if you'll take John with you, I'll finance the trip. And he pulled out $500 and gave it to Donnie. And he turned around and slid another $10 bill at me and said, that'll be the last one. And I swore right then that I would never be a burden on any of my family. So I know what it means to be rejected. And I know what it means to uh, to try to impress somebody. Because every kudos I got was performance-based. And I know there are a lot of people here that are dealing with the same kind of thing. That you felt rejection, abandonment. And you feel unwanted. But God delivered me from that. I was leaning against the wall in the federal pen. For those that you don't know, I ended up at uh, 17 and 18-year-old robbing banks throughout the southwest and up to Seattle. And by 18 years old, I was in the federal pen with three 10-year sentences for bank robbery. And I was standing there leaning against the wall and excuse me, but this is what I call my healthy, don't give a shit attitude. I'm leaning against the wall and going, life sucks. Nobody likes me. Nobody has ever liked me. And I don't know anybody that has any potential to like me. And even if they like me, they don't like me. They like this false image that I'm trying to make to, to impress somebody. And I made a decision right then that I would never again try to impress anybody. I'm going to be me, and either you like me or you don't. There's six billion people in the world, and if you don't like me, somebody else will. And I quit being that phony person, and I quit trying to impress people, and I said, from now on, I'm just going to be me. Guess what? People started liking me because I'm crude, but I'm real. I'll be anything in this world except a hypocrite. I will not ever again try to be something because that's what you think you want me to be. I'm going to be who I am. 
And guess what? A few years later, I found the Lord and I decided to be who I am for Christ. I know that there's some of you that struggle with addictions and some of you that struggle with the emotional bondage of of the way you've been treated. In the same way God can take away your addictions, He can heal your hurts. And I just want you to know that Christ is here and He's here tonight for you. And He loves you all. God bless you.